All right, if you could take a seat. If you have not already, please go ahead and take a seat. Again, if you could go ahead and take a seat. Again, if you could go ahead and take a seat. Well, again, welcome to City Church. And um, I'm going to ask that you would join with me to uniquely pray for our city. This afternoon at 3 o'clock in this auditorium, the federal government will be meeting with people from all over the city of Charlottesville to talk about what happened in our city. If you are like I am, I've seen little news clips of what's happened at some of the meetings following that. And I just feel like God has put us in this room ahead of time. Can you say amen to that? Amen. And we have an opportunity to pray, but to live differently than people who don't necessarily know who Jesus is. And so would you join me in prayer as we pray over this space? The Bible tells us to pray for and to bless our leaders, and in so there will be peace. The Bible says there will be peace in the land. And so we might have leaders that never think about praying, but we can pray with or pray for them as they're leading us. Do you understand that? So let's pray now and ask God to bless. Lord, we lift up to you this auditorium and as it is a sacred space now, we pray that it would remain that way throughout the rest of this day. And as people gather in this room, some who are filled with anger and bitterness and hate. I pray that your spirit would be resident here and that people would find a new way to live, a new way to do life, a strength to forgive and yet to pursue what is right. God, give our leadership wisdom from the federal government on down. We're praying for wisdom. We lift up our city leaders, our community leaders, and pray that in the midst of this time that your wisdom would move in and that in the midst of the chaos there would be a calming of the storm. God, again, though, we lift up our hearts. And if there's any bigotry or racism or hatred or bitterness in us, convict us deeply, deeply, deeply convict us and then give us the strength and the gift of the Holy Spirit to see that exit our lives and that we would live in your love. But again, I pray for City Church and every other church in Charlottesville combined with everyone who will be involved later on today. I pray that where human love falls short, godly love would step in. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So what we're doing as a City Church family today is we're really focusing on us participating in the life groups of our church. The truth of it is you can come in here in the large group and we have hundreds of hundreds of people sitting here. There's well over, well north of a thousand people that call City Church their home. But oftentimes we can be involved with the church but no one knows our name, no one knows our story. And so what I want to talk to us about this morning is the whole idea of sure thing relationship. Sure thing relationship. We're in a series that's entitled Sure Thing. 
And what we're looking at together are those things in Scripture that God says is a sure thing for you and in your life. And one of them is this, is that we, when we are in relationships with others, you will discover that if you're in relationships with people who are moving and following Jesus, that that will empower you and help you to do the same. Now, the scripture that we're going to look at very quickly is found in Romans chapter 16, page 922 in the Bibles we provide, Romans chapter 16, and we're going to begin to look at verse 1. Begin to look at verse 1. Now before we read, I think context is important. Who's the writer of this book? It's the Apostle Paul. Well, I know some of us here are just checking out faith. You've never read the Bible. You don't really even know who the biblical characters are. You might have heard of Noah and Moses and Jesus. But the guy that wrote this book, the book of Romans, wrote 14 other books in the Newer Testament. He was not always a Christian. As a matter of fact, he was a leader of the Jews in Jerusalem. And he took it upon himself to violently persecute Christians. The Bible tells us, and we find the Apostle Paul as in the name of Saul earlier in the Newer Testament before he becomes the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road. But what we find is he is a guy who is literally arresting and killing Christians because he believes that they are counter and opposed to God. You see, Christianity grew out of Judaism. Jesus was a Jew. And Jesus came into the world, and I believe that he fulfilled the Older Testament, and in doing so, he became what we call, and the Bible calls, the Messiah. And in that, Jesus, now fulfilling the Older Testament, becomes literally God in the flesh for us. Saul, or the Apostle Paul, would violently disagree. And so what Paul does, and when we're introduced to him in the Bible, he is holding the coats of men as they stone to death one of the original disciples. They kill him with stones. The next time we find Saul, we discover him going to the high priest in Jerusalem and requesting a letter that would give him the authority to go to a region of Israel called Damascus, where he would go house to house and question people, and if they were a follower of Jesus, he would have them arrested, dragged out of their home, and put in prison, men and women. It was a violent move. We hear Saul is on the road to Damascus, letter in hand, the Bible says he's literally breathing murderous threats. And on the road to the Damascus, he meets the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And there's a series of events that you can read in the book of Acts that follows. But he ends up becoming a passionate follower of Jesus. Not only is he a passionate follower of Jesus, he is a missionary. Saul becomes the Apostle Paul. An apostle is someone who saw the resurrected Christ. And he begins to travel the world and to plant churches. By the time of the writing of Romans, Paul has already planted several churches, but there are some that have just grown up by themselves 
and one of those is in Rome. And so the church, or the, the book, or the epistle of Romans is written to the church in Rome. But there's an interesting event that has happened that brings context to this letter that Paul is writing to the church in Rome. And it's this. In AD 49, the emperor Claudius made a decree that all Jews would be kicked out of the city of Rome. Every Jew had to leave. And so at that point in time, Christianity was viewed as a sect of Judaism. And so all the Jews and all the Christians were forced out of, or all the Jewish Christians were forced out of the city of Rome, and they fled for their lives. They stayed away for about seven to eight years, and finally Claudius dies. And a new leader, a new emperor, takes over. His name is Nero. Nero was 16 years old when he takes the throne. And you may know the story well, within about a decade and a half, Nero, because Rome burns, blames these people called Christians, and he violently turns on them and slaughters them wholesale. Extra-biblical historians tell us that Nero used Christians, alive Christians, dipped in tar, tied up, and up on posts. He would light them on fire, and they would utilize that to light his garden parties. It's a violent time. But you see, Emperor Claudius has passed away. Nero has not made that decision. Rome has not yet burned. And so what has happened is, these Jewish Christians who fled for their lives are now moving back into Rome, and they're finding large churches that have grown dramatically while they were gone for those seven to nine years. And Paul, who is a Jew, writes the letter of Romans to help them to understand their faith. He does it to help them to move and follow Jesus when they go back to Rome. Now, Paul is writing his letter from Corinth. He's staying in the home of a guy by the name of Gaius in Corinth. And he writes this letter. Corinth was a lot like Las Vegas. Rich people went there to party. It was a wealthy, wealthy city. To compare it to Las Vegas is an understatement. Paul went there and pioneered a church. And the church is thriving. It's going amazingly well. But Paul now is getting ready to make a move to take another missionary journey. So he writes the letter of Romans, and a lady named Phoebe, who we're going to meet in a few moments, is going to carry the letter for him to Rome. So what you would discover is that in this letter... There are 15 chapters of the most profound theological treaties on Jesus found anywhere in the Newer Testament. It is a theological goldmine of who Jesus is. But you know what's incredible? The first half of the book, and remember this is written to Jews, the first half of the book of Romans, chapter 1 to 7, essentially the Apostle Paul begins to teach them that if you're living by the 613 Jewish laws, and all the other laws that are auxiliary to that, and if you think that that's going to make you pleasing in God's sight, you're wrong. It's not about how good you are that makes you acceptable to God. It's about coming to God and repenting of your sin and then following Jesus. That's how this works. Because the reason is, 
is if you think being good enough is what makes you acceptable to God, how will you know when you've done a good need, a, enough good deeds in order to be acceptable to God? You will never know. But the Christian message is simple. Come to Jesus just as you are. Confess your sins. Repent of them. Ask Jesus to forgive you. And not only will he forgive you, but God will forget and Christ will clear your conscience. That's a miracle. When you are truly forgiven, your conscience somehow becomes clear. And it becomes clean. And when you think about where you've been and what you've done, you find this freedom through Jesus because of what he's done for you. The first seven chapters basically say this. If you're trying to live and to do good and live by a set of rules, you will find that you will dig a hole for yourself that's so deep you can never get out. And at the end of chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says this, Who will rescue me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. And then Romans 8 takes off like a rocket, and it says this, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You no longer have to feel condemnation for your sins because Christ has set you free. What an incredible thought. Now what's amazing to me is that here Paul writes this deep, profound theological letter he puts it in the hands of Phoebe, a businesswoman that is traveling from Corinth to Rome, and he puts it in her hand. But what's shocking to me is that the last chapter of the book, the one we're getting ready to look at, chapter 16, is a list of names. It's a group of people. Now, I have to confess to you that when I first stepped into the church, I admired my pastor deeply. I was a preteen boy. I'd never been to church. And when I stepped into church, I met the pastor. Man, I was convinced that guy could walk on water. Totally convinced. I don't know how this got in my head, but I believed he never had marital trouble. <laughs> he never had stress. You know what? Jesus was all he needed. And he was so close to Jesus all the time that he didn't need anyone else or anything else. If he didn't have enough food, just pray for it. God will multiply it. That's all you got to do. That's what I felt a pastor was. It's true. I remember the first time the pastor ever got up and confessed that he had struggled with something. I about fell over. But I not only felt that about my pastor, I also felt that about people in the Bible, like the Apostle Paul. And the other apostles, like John and Peter. Peter, by the way, is the second best name in the entire Bible. Jesus is number one. Peter's number two. But I can remember looking at the Apostle Paul going, man, that guy's so close to Jesus. I'm reading scripture. I'm coming to understand faith. And man, it's just amazing. And I'm reading and reading. And I think, you know what? People like my pastor and the Apostle Paul, they don't need anyone. They don't need anyone at all. You know what? Then you come to Romans 16. And it blows my mind. Because Paul has just delivered the most profound theological treatise on Jesus ever written. And chapter 16 is a list of names. It's a list of names of people that mean a lot to Paul. They mean a ton to Paul. 
Now, this past week, I had a conversation with a good friend about people remembering your name. My father, who we celebrated his 85th birthday in his elder care home in Greenville, South Carolina, we celebrated his birthday on Friday evening, 85 years old. My father can no longer walk. It was an amazing experience to sit there with my older brother and my dad kind of talked to us with the clear tone that he does not expect to live much longer. He spoke to us about what we meant to him and how we blessed his life. It was powerful. I pray every one of you either can give that experience or experience it yourself. It was amazing. I sat there as my dad prayed a blessing over our family. Profound. But on the way down, I was talking with a good friend of mine about remembering and people remembering names. And when I was mentioning that to my friend, my friend said this, Pete, out of the clear blue, it was really weird. He said, name your great-grandparents. I said, what? He said, name them. Name your great-grandparents. I said, I have no clue. Don't know their names. Never met them. He said, Pete, in 100 years, that'll be you and me. Well, that's kind of depressing to think about. <laughs> but you know what's amazing to me? In Romans chapter 16, the Apostle Paul lists names. These people, their names have been read for 2,000 years. 2,000 years. 24 to 26 names, depending on how you read them. And people for 2,000 years have read the end of Romans. And I think a lot of people probably think like I do. What a shift. Theological brilliance to writing 24 to 26 names. Now here's what I can tell you. When we look at this group of people, it would be similar, and you can't tell it from English, but it would be similar if I put up on the screen a list of my friends' names, and the first two were this. Big Bubba and Ephraim Bernstein. Big Bubba and Ephraim er Bernstein. And you would look at those two names and go, how does Big Bubba and Ephraim Bernstein get up on that? Because the names are so different. And the names tell you that these people are from different cultures, different areas, and yet they're on the same list. That's how the list is of these 24 to 26 names. They're very, very different people. You can tell because certain people groups name people certain things. So what I want to do very briefly this morning is I want to look at seven of the names. I want to look at them together. The first name is found in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. You got your smartphone turned there, or it'll be up on the screen in just a moment. But in Romans 16, 1, the Apostle Paul, who I always thought wouldn't need anyone, closes this profound letter, the book of Romans, with this list of names. He writes, Romans 16, 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon in the church of Chentry, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people 
and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. What we know from that little description of her is that she no doubt is a businesswoman. That little region that he mentions is the harbor part of the city of Corinth. It's where business people have their businesses. That's where she's from. Not only that, the Apostle Paul says, listen, this woman Phoebe, everyone in the church of Corinth has been her benefactor. What does that tell me about her? She's financially generous. She's a woman that gives financially to the local church. She gives to people when they have needs. She's that kind of a person. And the Apostle Paul says, the whole church of Corinth has been blessed by Phoebe. And he says, me as well. In other words, when Paul had financial need for his ministry, Phoebe was the one that would come to him and say, hey, Paul, how can I help? She financially gave. The whole church was a benefactor of hers, and so was Paul. Isn't it amazing that Phoebe, this deacon in the church in Corinth, was the one that would carry the letter to Rome? She's on a business trip, and the Apostle Paul puts it in her care, and she's the one that carries the letter. The end of the letter says, greet her. She's generous. And if she needs anything, give it to her because she's a giver, not a taker. She has a need. Bless her. Next, Romans 16, 13. We, read, we meet a married couple, Priscilla and Aquila. The Apostle Paul says of them that they are his co-workers in Christ and they risk their very lives for him. And he says, greet also the church that meets at their house. This couple pastors one of the churches in Rome. Paul knows them well. The Bible says, and Paul says, that they saved his life. This couple saved Paul's life. What could that have looked like? My mind goes to Paul's description of some of the sufferings that he's been through. He announces himself in a different pastoral letter that he was beaten five times with 40 lashes by a cat of nine tails minus one. Five times. Another time he was beaten by sticks. And another time men threw rocks at him and thought he was dead and left him in a ditch. You know what I think? I think this married couple saw Paul being whipped 40 times minus one. They knew he was a follower of Jesus, and so were they. And when the Roman Empire was done pounding him within, within a millimeter of his life, this couple went to Paul, and they said, we're going to take you home, and we're going to nurse you back to health. We will take care of you. We're going to love you. Because the Bible says they risked their lives for Paul. That's how I picture them. Notice here too, it says, greet Priscilla and Aquila and greet also the church that meets in their home. That fascinates me. The church doesn't have a building. 
It's like city church. We kind of move in when we need the space and then we move out. We don't have a church building, but we have a group of people called the church. I will tell you one of the most confusing things you could ever do to a first century Christian is put them in your car. Yes, that would confuse them. And not only that, if you took them for a drive around Charlottesville and then you pulled past City Church Central on Ryle Road and you pointed to our permanent building and you looked to that first century Christian, you said, ha, this is my church. They'd go, where? No, that's my church. Right? No, it's not. A church isn't a building. A church is the Greek word ekklesia, which means called out ones. The church in the first century was always a group of people, never a building, ever. So the Apostle Paul says to the church in Rome, please greet the church that meets in their home. And he reminds them that couple saved my life by risking theirs. Then we go on to the next person. The next person is Romans 16.6. Her name is Mary. It's a common name. In Hebrew, it's Miriam. We know from extra-biblical literature, Mary or Miriam was such a common name. It was all over, and you find it all over the Newer Testament and the Gospels as well. We have no clue who Mary really is. But you know what shocks me? Here's what Paul writes about Mary. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Wow. This Mary works hard. She's the type of woman in the church that comes early. She's part of the setup team. She stays late. She's part of the teardown team. She's the type of person that's on time, dependable, upbeat, and she works hard. I will tell you as a pastor of a church that involves hundreds and hundreds of people, the church is built on Mary. They truly are. People that you don't need to check up on all the time. They work hard. They're dependable. You can rely upon them. Apostle Paul says, greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Next, slide number seven. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. Isn't that incredible? The Apostle Paul, who was imprisoned innumerable times, now greets a couple who were imprisoned with him. They spent time in the clink together. But listen, prison during Paul's time was brutal. If no one fed you, you starved to death. When you were in prison during Paul's time, you were beaten regularly. And I wonder how often when Paul was on the verge of giving up, Andronicus and Junius said to Paul, you can do this, hang in there, hold on. And out of their relationship, Paul maybe wrote this verse. When you face trials of many, many kinds, count it all as joy. Isn't it incredible that the Apostle Paul writes that this couple were fellow prisoners with me. Greet them. Next are two ladies. Their names are Tryphena and Tryphosa. Yup, 
They're undoubtedly twins. Tryphena and Tryphosa. Why did I share their names? Because it's fun to say. Tryphena and Tryphosa. Here's how I picture them. These Italian ladies living in Rome, they're absolutely beautiful. They are identical twins. You can't tell them apart. When they stand side by side, they look like two identical roses in a vase. You don't know which one's which, but they're beautiful. They have beautiful names. My son went to high school with twin girls like this. They were beautiful. They used to pull pranks. One of them would go on a date with a man to a restaurant or a fellow student, and then the, one, the first one would get up and say, I have to go to the bathroom, and you know what happened. The other twin would come out and sit down, and they'd see if the guy could notice. And if he didn't notice, he was fired on the spot. I picture these two ladies' amazing names, Tryphena and Tryphosa. They're part of the church. Paul says, greet them. Greet them. It also says they worked hard for everyone. It's amazing. The next name that we're going to meet is a guy named Philogus. Philogus. Do you know why I put his name up there? It's because no one will name their kid Philogus. Some woman who's sitting there, you're praying to have a child or you're with child, and if you have twins, you bumped your husband a moment ago and said, if they're girls and they're twins, let's name them Tryphena and Tryphosa. Let's do that. No woman sitting here just bumped her husband and said, if it's a boy, let's name him Philologus. Philologus. Never going to happen. Next. The last, or the next, verse 13. Paul says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Wow. The Apostle Paul, who I thought was Teflon and needed no one, announces to the church in Rome, please greet Rufus, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Shocking. You know what I want to say to Paul? Paul, you are 60 years old. He says, oh no, this woman's been a mother to me. What do mothers do? Mothers pray a lot. Mothers listen. Mothers love. And mothers speak the truth. Paul said, greet Rufus. His mother's been my mother, too. You know, when I think about Rufus's mom, whatever her name is, we don't know. But when I think about her mom, I picture listening and praying and loving. But I also picture her in the following context of a woman that I once heard about by a friend of mine who in the 70s was in the late 60s was a radical feminist. She was a radical feminist, and she went to go to one of those radical feminist rallies in the late 60s and the early 70s. And she was involved with all of that, and she ended up getting put in a home because homes were open to house these women that were coming through, and she ended up in the home of an older woman. 
And this lady talks about being in this home of the older woman. And as she was in her home, she would come home every night. And she would bang her fist on this elderly lady's kitchen table. And she would scream about the injustices of our culture. And the last night, the elderly lady looked at her just like a mom. And said, I can, can I tell you something honestly? She said, sure. She said, young lady, you are bitter. You're bitter. But I know someone that can change your life. His name's Jesus. And before that table discussion was over, she'd accepted Christ. I picture Rufus's mother like that. Paul, sit down. Eat your breakfast. Paul, listen to God. Paul, you have a temper. Deal with it. And then the last one. Verse 23. The Bible says, and Paul writes, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you greetings. You see, now Paul is talking about Gaius, who is in the church in Corinth. Paul's been living in his home. Not only that, though, Paul says this. He says, Gaius sends you greetings to the people that he knows in Rome, but know this, that the entire church of Corinth has been blessed by his hospitality. Have you ever met a person like this? Have you ever met a person like Gaius? When you get around them, they make you feel welcome. They're the type of person that when you meet them, if they have the gift of hospitality, they will remember your name. How many of you struggle to remember people's names? Raise your hand high. Listen, the honest confession is I can't even remember my kids' names at times, let alone anyone else's. But the people with the gift of hospitality, they meet you, they remember your name, they remember your story, and when they meet you again, Oh my, they have the gift of hospitality. And Paul says the entire church, everyone, the hundreds and hundreds of people in the church in Corinth have experienced this man's hospitality. Wow. So this theological book ends with a clear demonstration of the importance of relationship. The Apostle Paul, who's the super apostle who healed people, raised people from the dead, prayed over handkerchiefs, put them in the mail, the person that touched it was healed. I mean, my goodness, it goes on and on and on. And yet, here's a guy at the end of his most important theological treaties, lists about 25 people. And he makes sure that everyone knows their name. He makes sure. I have a question for you. Do you have a list of names like Paul? Do you have a list of names of people? People that would rescue you. People that have loved you. People that have given to you. People that have encouraged you in the faith. People that have walked with you so much so that when you think about your walk with Jesus, if you ever wrote your story, they would have to be in your story. Do you have those names? Do you have a half dozen or a dozen? You see, this is what Life Groups is all about. 
You see, the churches in the Newer Testament met in homes. They knew each other. They knew each other's names. And the Apostle Paul, as he writes this letter, names 25 plus or minus people that are eternally in Scripture. Because Paul can't imagine what it would be like to study theology and explain who Jesus is without having people who would journey with him. My question have your list. Maybe more importantly, are you and am I on someone else's list? Are we on a list that whereas we follow Jesus and we serve others, we do it with people together, people that know our name and they know our story. I'm going to ask for you to take just a moment to close your eyes in God's presence when you're done praying or done being in God's presence for just a moment, that card that we gave you, I'm going to encourage you. Please, if you're not in a life group, commit to being in one. It'll make all the difference to you.